So in the episode you're about to listen to, my guest delves into what it's like as a journalist to have subjects threaten you, berate you, diminish you. And I want to say something, and it's uttered with more than 25 years in the business at my back. Okay, here I go. Fuck that. There's this idea that as reporters, we just need to take it. People can spit on us, degrade us, make us feel two inches tall. And that's just the way it is because we're journalists. But the thing is, that's not just the way it is. I used to take shit. I used to just absorb it. And then one day, I was done. It actually involved Will Clark, the former all-star first baseman who had made my life sort of miserable when he was an active player and I was covering baseball for Sports Illustrated. Then, back in 2005, Clark was working as a spring instructor with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I approached to ask some questions for my Barry Bonds book. He agreed, but as I started asking stuff, he'd reply with, nope, nope, nope. I finally had it. I said, is this what you're going to do? And he said, why would I talk to you? And then I snapped. You know what I said? I don't give a fucking shit. You don't play anymore. I don't really need you. And I walked off fricking giddy. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Julian Routh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette's political reporter and a man coming off a brutal stretch of sleepless nights and electoral college days. This is episode number 181. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. Well, Julian, here you sit, and you just said to me, um, which is something I was going to ask, you said your brain is basically mush over this past, based off of this past week of uh, reporting in the presidential election. How do you feel now? Does it feel like your job is complete? We know who the next president is going to be. Your job is done. It's good. I can take a deep breath, or are you like, no, this isn't over yet, shit, 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 shit? The job is never complete, Jeff. Uh, I'm like, shit, 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 shit. Um, I really think that covering politics is probably the worst job in the entire universe. Um, If you were to look at this list of jobs a couple of years ago, um, journalists ranked just about last. And I would say that news reporter who covers politics is at the bottom of that list, Uh, especially during the Trump administration, where it's just a constant barrage over and over again of news. And here in a swing state, especially, um, it can be pretty overwhelming. So I don't think we've heard the last from President Trump, especially here in Pennsylvania, where he has threatened to prosecute his case. Um, 92 hours later after me working this week, 92 hours, I'm ready to get back at tomorrow, which is uh, the day he's going to start prosecuting his case. So Biden is by all appearances, the president-elect of the United States. Then Trump comes along, and, and he has a very long history of suing over and over. I mean, there are you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> hundreds upon hundreds of lawsuits by Donald Trump. So how seriously do you and the media, you being a political reporter in particular, have to take it? I would say you have to take it with a pretty tremendous grain of salt, but you've got to be extremely objective at the same time. Um, I think Donald Trump does this and he does sue repeatedly in court because he wants to stifle and suppress any bit of healthy democratic conversation. And I think he wants to tie journalists and dissidents up in so much litigation that they sort of can't dig themselves out from under it. 
mm-hmm. which it's certainly intentional. Uh, he's proven that over and over again in his life. But we're here to cover the story, and I am willing to give him a chance this week to prove that voter fraud is some widespread um, you know, uh, subject of the way that we vote, it, which, by the way, he has not been able to prove so far. He hasn't even uh, presented a lick of evidence. He was asked here in Pennsylvania, Jeff, to do so specifically, and they didn't come up with any. You know, this is intentional. This is something that uh, the media should cover, but it shouldn't push around the priorities of all the problems we're facing to start pulling out legal documents over 57 votes in Philadelphia and 52 votes down in, you know, the, the Georgia. How do you know how to cover it? I mean, all right, so the, the campaign comes out and they say there's all this fraud and blah, blah, blah. And we have all these examples because he is the president of the United States. Do you need to pursue each one? Do you need to look into each one? Is that or do you sort of consider the source and not? I mean, I don't even know. I have no clue how you do this. Uh, sometimes I don't know how I do it either, Jeff. But, um, uh, you know, what you do is, you know, I think there are a couple of cases that have proven themselves to be um, the most important and most significant. And you can tell that by the judges that choose to take them up. You can tell it by the U.S. Supreme Court willing to hear arguments and, and hear paperwork on, you know, the subject of Pennsylvania's deadline for absentee ballots, for example. Now, you know, at the same time, you're absolutely right. Uh, there will be times where the Trump campaign or the Republican Party here will file, you know, uh, different lawsuits in 27 different courts across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And really, you know, a lot of journalists get locked up into, uh, you know, seeing what other people cover. And, you know, unfortunately, some outlets just cover so much stuff that, you know, your editors will call you and say, you don't have the, uh, you know, you don't have the information on this lawsuit that was filed over in Westmoreland County, for example. So, you know, it's extremely difficult when you're dealing with a president that so routinely uses the courts and a Republican Party right now that so routinely uses the courts to try to capture its message and, and portray this sort of strength when you know, journalists should be covering COVID-19 right now. Journalists should be covering, you know, the economic destruction that this virus has caused. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're trapped pulling paperwork. Do you feel like you need to go, you need to do this with the um, belief that Joe Biden is a president-elect? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think so. I think the way that, you know, we are able to parse through, and I did this myself, parse through mathematics and statistics to show, you know, exactly you know, why Joe Biden is the president. Um, you know, that's the way the system works. And journalism should work that way, too, where a fact is a fact is a fact. Uh, and the fact is here that Donald Trump so far, again, has not been able to produce any evidence to us that would pass journalistic uh, scrutiny uh, by any means. And, uh, you know, for this moment, we can call President-elect Biden, President-elect Biden. I asked this of my newsroom editors yesterday and said, is it time now? I mean, this is my first election I've covered. Uh, is the Associated Press call really, really what we should go by? Absolutely. It's, it's never been wrong. Uh, it's rarely been wrong in you know places and states in particular, but I think it's time. No matter what the president says, uh, you know that's the way we roll. All right. So you said being a political reporter not the best job in the world. Is covering a presidential election itself like I I used to hate covering the World Series. Like I hated the World Series because I much preferred a Cubs Brewers game on a Tuesday night with both teams fifteen games out of first because it was more casual, more relaxed. On the other hand, covering a World Series super exciting, super hyped is covering a presidential election when your state, the state you are in, is such a major player. Is it awesome, fantastic, amazing, or is it shitty, awful, never want to do again? 
I want to preface everything that I had said before about political journalism being the worst job by saying I absolutely love every second of it. And I would actually flip it on on its head a bit. Um, You know, I think that the covering the presidential race was more relaxing than covering any congressional, you know, down ballot city council race that I've been covering for three years now. Jeff, the amount of vitriol and, you know, personality and contentiousness and angry midnight phone calls is amplified a hundred times when you're talking about a local congressional race than when you're talking about the presidential election. I covered this election in probably the most important geographic territory for both of these candidates in the entire United States. I would argue that. And not one time, not one time that I feel like I wasn't able to write exactly what I wanted to write. And, um, you know, I didn't hear from the campaigns every single day like I would with congressional campaigns. It was actually kind of a treat to do it, which is, you know, certainly odd. Do the campaigns call the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette when they're angry, when they're happy, when they're trying to get something across? Is it now, has it become such a national game that they're more inclined to call, you know, whatever CNN or Fox News or MSNBC? Or are they still concerned with the hyper-local reporters? You know, they should be concerned about the hyper-local reporters, but, you know, the truth is they're not. They, they have bigger fish to fry. They love to play on the, the big networks and love to talk to you know, the Ivy League graduated, um, you know, White House press corps, rather than spend their time in in Western Pennsylvania, which um, I will, I'll be honest, the Biden campaign was a lot more, um, you know, communicative to local journalists than the Trump campaign was for sure. But at the same time, it was not enough by any means. I expected going into the season that my phone would be one of the most popular phones among presidential campaigns, period. And that's not an egotistical thing. It's just they should do that. This is so important to them. And it just wasn't the case. Uh, and, and, you know, by the way, I should mention our newspaper, our editorial board, had endorsed President Trump two days before the election. Um, so, and it was important. I mean, President Trump mentioned it on the stage at one of his last rallies. And again, we're separate from what the editorial board does. But, you know, that just goes to show that there should have been an extreme focus here. And, you know, they, they want to play, a, a, you know, a bigger fish. How does it impact a news reporter and specifically a political reporter when your newspaper makes an endorsement? Do people assign that to you even though you have nothing to do with it? Does it not come up at all? How, what is the impact on that? It's, uh, it's absolutely one of the worst moments of covering a campaign is when you wake up in the morning and you, you, know, you open the newspaper and there it is on page A2 that the editorial board chimed in on the race you've been covering for months. And you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they don't always get the facts right. They have a political agenda just as much as any other partisan actor, in my opinion. Um, and the, the one that we had done, uh, the one that my editorial board had done, did not get all the facts right. So, you know, it leads you to believe as a reporter that, you know, your own newspaper printing, you know, its own pages is, you know, aren't, isn't reading your work, uh, you know, for example. But beyond that, you know, of course, out in the field, as soon as the Trump endorsement came down, and as soon as some other Republican endorsements here in Pennsylvania came down, so one of the first things you hear is from the Democratic campaigns texting you and saying, you got to be kidding me. I thought you were objective. You know, you covered the race, you know, fairly for, for so long and this happened. Why did you do it? And you have to explain that, you know, you know, the split between editorial and news, which is one of the things that the public just doesn't understand right now. And, you know, that just goes to a lot of the problems the media is going to have for several years unless we make some important changes. Do you feel like newspapers shouldn't endorse candidates? I think that it's an outdated system. I think it's, uh, you know, something that would have lasted or would have made more of an impact back in 
the 1960s and 1970s when people read newspapers way more than they do now. And right now it kind of just serves, an endorsement just serves to amplify the partisan bickering and partisan bragging among a candidate. And, you know, I don't think it has a quantifiable impact uh, to the public. I don't think it shifts points in either direction because everybody has already had their mind made up. And we saw that in this election more than ever. I mean, you saw the independent candidate this past week get less votes than, you know, way less votes than anybody had thought. And it was because, again, people had their minds made up. And the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is not going to change that for anybody two days before an election. I am fascinated by this. So the election was Tuesday, which feels like 17 weeks ago already, which is just insane. Heading into Tuesday, what did you know your week would be like? And I guess in a big fat question, you could take 100 years to answer. What was your week like? Uh, It was waking up at four in the morning and going to bed at three in the morning. I mean, it was um, uh, about as hard as I was ever asked and, you know, uh, anticipated to work. But, um, you know, the thing is, is that it was such an ever-changing race. And with the nature of so many mail-in ballots and just changing the way that we voted as as a people here in Pennsylvania... I knew that uh, there was going to be so much uncertainty and I didn't know that the uncertainty was going to last for several days. I thought that we would have a winner by, you know, uh, you know, Thursday at the latest. We had one on Saturday, of course. Um, but really it's just, it was from dusk till dawn, phone ringing off the hook with different political players trying to get a message in your ear to, you know, because they think that we exist purely to amplify their messages, Jeff. And that's not exactly what we do, of course. Um, and, it, you know, it was just that all day and, and trying to shape the readership and shape the people who consume this news to believe a particular message about where the election was headed. And I think it plays a, um, you know, a twofold purpose, especially for President Trump, who I think was trying to, um, you know, prepare people for, uh, you know, several weeks of a legal battle like we've talked about. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think that I've been preparing for this race for so long that, it went by faster than I ever could have imagined. And, you know, we put out so much work and content and followed all the data and really tried to add something a little bit new into the conversation that other people weren't having because everybody was covering this. And, you know, that was the challenge. Right. So election night, you are, are you home because of COVID? Are you doing this all from your, your place? I didn't want to admit this, but yeah, yeah, I was at my home uh, right in front of my laptop all day. And what do you, like, what are you looking for? How are you trying to figure out what you're going to write? And how much, how much of what you're doing is social media as opposed to the old school way of we're just putting out, we're waiting for the big, the quote unquote big story to write? Uh, you know, it was, it was way more focused on social media um, this year than I, I ever experienced. And, you know, I covered the midterms in 2018. I covered part of the presidential election in 16 as part of a team. Um, this being my first, you know, one as the lead reporter, um, I kind of expected to, try to get my point of view out there on social media more than just filing traditional print stories over and over again, which I did do, but you would have found the information first on my Twitter before you found it on postgazette.com. I, I hope the PG doesn't listen to this, but that's just what happened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was the nature of the game where covering election, covering an election that is changing so fast and that everybody else is covering is – so is, is antithetical to the print model and antithetical to going to a website, clicking on a link and just waiting for it to update or checking back over and over again. Uh, social media is, is such a blessing for this, but it's also, well, you know, poisonous to the discourse, but that's a totally different um, topic. Right. But so what are you giving people via social media at home, 
during a pandemic, covering this election, representing the Post-Gazette. What are you, what are you able to give people that Jake Tapper or, you know, who, I don't know, whoever, Anderson Cooper, whoever, blah, 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 cannot? I was able to give people the context of exactly what Western Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania in particular means, because whenever the New York Times and the Washington Post and, uh, like you mentioned, Jake Tapper, Anderson Cooper, started to amplify their message about Pennsylvania, because when days went along, Pennsylvania became more and more and more of a focus, and it ended up eventually winning the presidency for, for Biden, um, they started to get things factually wrong, like factually wrong about who we are, how we vote, um, where the vote count even was. I mean, there were estimates of vote count, you know, the, the ballots remaining to be counted that were amplified by 400,000 votes coming from CNN. So I'm getting calls saying, Biden's going to win this easily. There's 800,000 mail-in ballots left in Philly. And I had to point out and say, I'm familiar with the Department of State's website, for example. It was, you know, so-and-so delayed. And that's something that comes along with the territory. So what I was trying to do was inject little pieces of information uh, throughout the evening about what Biden and Trump had told Pennsylvanians, how Pennsylvanians reacted to it, um, and how they were voting that night that, you know, if, if you're CNN, it's very hard to focus state by state by state, and you're going to get things wrong. How much do you worry about um, speed versus accuracy for yourself? I mean, obviously, it's a problem in the media. How much do you worry about that for yourself? I worry about accuracy a lot more. Uh, and, it, you know, it's one of the things that disappoints me um, with a lot of my colleagues and counterparts from across the country is, um, you know, as fast as you get your news out, you're going to be the one, no matter what, if it's true or false, you're going to get the thousands of retweets if you get it out first. That's just obvious. Um, the problem is, though, is when you're covering politics, every single little word that you write is going to be picked apart, scrutinized, um, used for political gain, used for disinformation. Um, you know, so you have to be 100% sure of every single word that you put out to the public. And I had a, you know, I had an incident earlier this campaign season where, you know, I got something, you know, a little bit wrong and I knew it right away and I admitted it. What as was soon it? as I did, it was, I believe it was a fundraising note. I think it was a fundraising note in a congressional campaign here where I, I had gotten the number wrong for one of the candidates and the other candidate had called and said, you're working for that candidate, aren't you? I mean, you're inflating his numbers. You're um, trying to make it seem like his campaign is doing a much better job than ours, and you should be ashamed of yourself. And they blasted me on Twitter repeatedly. And you know what? To this day, they're still doing it. They're saying this was the guy who, you know, messed up this number, which was a total honest mistake. Honest mistakes, though, are not going to work in 2020. That's not the political arena we're playing in. We're playing in one where... Um, every little piece of information, including your past voter registration, is, is picked apart. I had a buddy here in the city who wrote a uh, story that was critical of Republicans, and they pulled up his Democratic registration from years ago and used it to try to pick him apart personally. It's just not something you would have seen, you know, 10 years ago even. I mean, this is all new. You know, it's funny. I used to, um, when I was covering baseball, I went through this, right? On a much smaller scale, admittedly, but I was at SI and you'd write something that'd be critical of whoever, the Atlanta Braves or the Texas Rangers. And you would get people who would say, well, you just blah, 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 blah. You just hate the Braves because blank, because you're from New York. Or you hate the Rangers because blah, blah, blah. I read somewhere where you said blah, 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 blah. 
And you're like, listen, man, this is just a job to me. Like, I want to do it well, and I want to get it right, and I want to be good, but I don't give a shit if the Braves win or lose. And I feel like one thing that freaking drives me crazy when it comes to people in your position is, I know, like, I'm sure, like, whatever, you, have, you think certain candidates are better or worse, blah, blah. You just want to do your fucking job well. Like, 99% of us just want to do our job well. And these people who are like, you just blah, blah. It's like, you don't get it, man. We just want to do our jobs well. And we want to do a job that is not paying me well. It's not, you know, uh, it's not paying the bills every day. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we're in a dying industry at a place that, you know, has had its layoffs. Thank God it hasn't happened again during the pandemic. And I, I give them credit for that. But they have to understand that uh, I'm not a partisan player in this game. And, you know, I pride myself. I take it a little too extreme now because I'm a little bit worried about it. Um, I'm a registered independent now for the first time in my life. Wasn't something that I ever even thought about before this. Um, I don't vote, which is very controversial, but I do not vote. Um, Wait, why don't you vote? That's interesting. Why don't you vote? Well, okay. I should preface this by saying that I do sometimes vote in general elections. I don't vote in primaries. I don't register to a party. Um, whenever Whenever I believe that my voice isn't going to fight for the values that we should be fighting for with, you know, the readership. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't do it. And I had a, I had a mentor who to this day just doesn't, you know, uh, register his voice in that way. And he says that it's because you should not, after doing all that you've done to cover this race, just admit at the end that, you know, you preferred a candidate. Now I, I see that's a, a little bit hokey. I don't think that that's entirely true. I think you can separate your biases from your reporting very easily. And I, pride myself to try to criticize both candidates and sides as much as I can. Maybe not be, maybe not criticize, but be critical of their positions. But um, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I still haven't actually figured out if I should be voting in the future. I struggled a lot this past week thinking about it. Um, and it's just something that, again, it's the nature of the game in 2020 where these people are looking for any little thing they can get on you in particular. They're attacking journalists because when something comes out that is critical of them, the information's already going to suppress itself because they have already tor- tried to tear apart your character and your integrity. I feel like uh, the whole blame the messenger thing, it's always been a thing, but it's now become a really sort of has a violent feel to it that it never had back in the day, which is really troubling to me. It does. Uh, you know, I-, I know that most of it probably comes from thousands of Russian bots or whoever is in my mentions, but every single time that I tweeted out something about Joe Biden picking up ground in Pennsylvania, just based on pure statistics and math, there would be an army of bots in my mentions just saying purely awful things, not about me personally, probably just a, a, a font script or whatever. But, you know, I've received threatening messages before, not as much as some of my colleagues. Um, and I just feel like the atmosphere is so unwelcoming for the truth and for statistics and for facts that it's dangerous. And I don't know how much a, a president-elect Biden can do to fix that. I don't know how much the government can fix that. The, the well has been poisoned at this point in a way I'm, I'm pretty afraid of. Don't you think the worst, I mean, it's unsolvable, but I just think social media, like at the end of the day, I'm on Twitter a lot. You're on Twitter a lot. If you told me right now, we could just get rid of Twitter. Like just goodbye, get rid of it. I'd be a hundred percent in. I just think there's more negative than positive to the existence of this thing. I would too. I would get, get rid of it in a moment. Um, I, I don't think I would have many regrets because the way that um, we communicate information, I think is going to evolve over time to, to places that aren't as infectious and poisonous to, to the way we talk. But 
again, the president has chosen this as his main way to talk to the people. And you know what? There is a way, you know, there is a sense of giving him credit for that because he has been able to amplify and mobilize so many people. And look how many people voted for him last Tuesday. They heard from him consistently over four years on this platform. Sure, they've used the information to attack uh, other people. I, I admit that very openly. Um, but it's just become such an entrenched uh, part of the way that we live that it's extremely hard, even as a news business, to, to move on from that. So um, you're sitting home, it's election night, then it's the next day. Like, when do you know, when do you get the go-ahead, okay, this is it, you can write about Joe Biden being the president-elect. How does that actually happen? <laughs> well, uh, I got to admit, I actually, this is the first election where I didn't pre-write that Joe Biden had won the presidency because I had thought up until Friday night that there was a significant chance that Trump could come back. I mean, looking at the math map and looking at what was left here in Pennsylvania, I thought, man, there are 100,000 ballots out there that are provisionals. Could there be 70,000 for Trump? Of course there could. So I urged a lot of caution in my newsroom saying that, you know, I think we should, we should prepare for both scenarios. So Saturday morning comes and I, I had sent out a message to the entire newsroom saying that I believe firmly that on Monday, this race is going to get called. I think it's going to be called for Biden. Then we got to count some provisional ballots. There's a lot of things left, you know, 10 minutes later it gets called. And it, it you know, it was because there was a batch of ballots in Philadelphia that made it mathematically impossible, apparently. And, you know, from there, my editor was actually, you know, in his pajamas sitting on his bed. And it was just, you know, we got to go like immediately, we have to go and get this up. And what are you, so when you're sitting down and you're writing this, like, I don't know, like, I've never written anything that big. I mean, you're writing for a major newspaper that we just elected a new president. Like, uh, what are you trying to do? And what are you thinking while you write it? Well, I, I panicked. I mean, there's, there's a 10 minutes of panic where you're sitting there thinking, this is one of the biggest moments in history right now, potentially. And uh, this is my first election. I'm not prepared to write this. You think of resigning right there, right then and there, just period. I'll just text my editors and say, I can't do this. This is way too much because, you know, oh, I didn't pre-write or, you know, I didn't think about this. And then I just, I told myself, let's just sit here for five minutes straight in silence and think, okay, what facts do we know right now? We know Joe Biden is going to be the president of the United States. Well, what do you ask then as a journalist? Why? Just why did this happen and how did this happen? So I thought to myself, you know, how exactly did he win Pennsylvania? And I came together with the narrative that, you know, this is Pennsylvania's third senator. We called him this forever. This is somebody who came here intentionally several times, started his campaign here, ended his campaign here, and, you know, spoke to people here in a way that they had never been spoken to before, and kind of in a way that Trump did in 16, saying, you know, you've been forgotten and I'm going to remember you. Um, so then it just, I don't know, man, it just flowed from there just I was so blessed and happy that, you know, 30 minutes later, I had a lead that wasn't awful and wasn't, uh, you know, disjointed. It just came. I don't know if it was human instinct or all that I've been preparing for, but, you know, when the panic wore off, it was just sort of ready to go. <laughs> Do you read it over five times before you send it in? Yeah, I don't. Uh, whenever it, it goes down, I send it immediately, and then I try to clean up afterwards. So, you know, I, I sent the narrative uh, the first time we got it up pretty immediately. And that ended up being the lead that I, I kept pretty much, which, you know, at normally your first instinct on this stuff after four years of covering it should be 
you know, very accurate and should be the one that you go with. And for me, it was, it was, you know, Pennsylvania paid this guy back after, you know, 50 years of this guy trying to, to do stuff for us. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, the panic though, I really, I really did panic, Jeff. This was, this was like very scary to do. And I, I still am scared now the adrenaline hasn't stopped. Before we continue with two writers thinking yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my son Emmett and you must be so relieved. I am. Thank God that's all over. It's just so exhausting. Day after day of anticipation, every second, another moment of waiting. I'm just glad it's finally done and I can get some sleep. I told you the Houston Gamblers hat you ordered from 503-sports.com would finally come in the mail. You're so freaking impatient. I just want to make my throwback sports wardrobe great again. I first knew you about uh, eight years ago when you wrote something for my website when you were a student at Duquesne. And I don't know what year you were at the time, maybe a sophomore in college or whatever. And I was just having college students write, you know, these kind of goofy essays where we would debate about something. And, and you're not, how old are you? 29? 26. I'm 26. 26 years old covering a freaking presidential election. That is, at 26, I was covering Astros Mets. You know, like it's a totally different stratosphere. Um, do you, it's a little speculative, I guess. Do you feel like at 26... Are there things you don't know how to do that would help you covering politics? You know what I mean? Like, do you feel like there are things not quite in your arsenal yet because you just haven't learned it yet? Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, I actually am going to like call back to something that you had said probably about eight years ago that I still remember to this day, which is something I just have not been able to articulate or, or you know, mimic in my own work, which is, you know, you had talked about when you're in the locker room, everybody's going to go to, you know, Cam Newton, for example, everybody in the, in the room, mm -hmm. but you know, Jared Stidham is going to be sitting over there in the corner and, you know, he probably has way more to say, and it's always necessary to talk to the people in the room, the backup linebacker or the third stringer. And that's where you're going to get your stories. And for me, it's too easy. And, um, you know, it, it, it's had a lot of success for me to talk to, you know, the guys who, who, and the, the, the men and women who do this thing, professionally, as in they're the congressmen, they're the congresswomen, um, you know, they're their top aides, etc. But for me, it's been extremely hard to build sourcing, you know, real steady sourcing that can give me information that everybody else doesn't know, you know, in a split second in real time. That's been a struggle for me over here. And I, you know, I do, you know, I'm 26. And I'm, you know, trying hard to just sort of react to history as it comes. But I really want to be a journalist who actually like drives the narrative. And I think it's going to be important to build that type of sourcing that you talked about where, you know, you know, it's hard to be, it's hard to go against the grain here. It's hard to, you know, not have the congressman in your story when everybody else does, um, you know, yeah, journal right. journalism and politics is, you know, it's, it's, it's like a club. It really is where you all are going to be kind of expected to report the same thing at the end of the day. This person said this and here's why it is or isn't accurate. Um, I want to get to a place where I was the one who drove that conversation in the first place. Wait, so that's really interesting. So you're basically saying you do a story about whatever, some congressional election, and it is expected that you speak to whoever, the chief of staff or so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, there's this maybe low-level person in the campaign who would give you much better information, but you're saying there's almost like this unspoken pressure to speak to the chief of staff even though that person usually is just full of shit. Absolutely. 100%. Um, that's exactly what I mean. And, and to expand on that a bit, um, 
You know, when you, okay, when a candidate says something, the way that this works is 17 different outlets are going to hear what that candidate says. They're going to get their stories up saying candidate said A, B, and C, you know, within the next hour. And then your editor is going to call you and say, why aren't we part of the club? Why didn't we talk to this person um, or, or get that quote? And, you know, there's not, there's not much time because of the pace of how politics moves to be able to reach below the surface and say, what, what's working below this that's making this happen? Why did it happen? You know, we all know it happened and we all reported A, B, and C. You know, we were stenographers and just, just did it. Um, no one has the time to be able to go underneath the surface. And that's just something that maybe it's, maybe it's the industry as a whole that's facing where just limited resources, layoffs, you know, et cetera, are, are driving that. But, you know, I want to get out of it. And that's the place where I want to be in the, by the next election. Interesting. So when you see, when you hear someone like, uh, whatever, I, re- I was reading Maggie Haberman this morning at the New York Times, and, and obviously she has a lot of really good sources within the, within the White House and with Trump and blah, blah, blah. Do you, do you look at someone like that and think, man, I wish I had the New York Times resources where there were more of us and I could devote more time to this? Do you think she's a veteran and she just knows how to maneuver certain things? I don't know how to maneuver. To, is it the benefit of being the New York Times and not the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette? You know, like when you look at someone like that or someone from the Washington Post, what's the difference between what they are doing or able to do and what you are able to do? It's a little bit of, of all three, uh, unfortunately, but also fortunately. And I'll explain why. I think, you know, first and foremost, the resources are such at, you know, small local newspapers, I guess mid-sized local newspapers, that, you know, I'm the only guy here. I'm the only reporter who is covering the concept of elections. And elections isn't just, you know, Donald Trump versus Biden here. It's 27 different state legislative races. It's 18 more state Senate races, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes down the line. So Maggie Haberman is able to, and you know, all there's just such an extraordinary job at being able to gather these sources from such a different variety of, of folks. Um, she can go into that white house and just focus all of her energy on talking to these types of sources because, you know, she has so many colleagues who are looking at every different aspect of this race. Um, but at the same time, you know, the New York Times is, is going to be first in line no matter what. They're the ones who drive the discourse. You know, they're at the top and everything that they write is going to trickle down to us anyways. So that's why, you know, I think beyond her being an incredible reporter and a, and a workhorse who writes, you know, 10 stories a day at this point, um, you know, I think that, that they're able to do that type of journalism and dig deep. Do you feel like, um, I hear this a lot, most people will be like, Everyone in politics sucks. They're all, obviously you have to have a certain ambition to, to uh, go for a higher office and a healthy ego and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Are there good people who run for office or is it mainly assholes with, who are just want to be, have power? It's, it's mainly assholes who want to have power. Um, unfortunately, I, I think it's such, and it's not their fault. You know, there are a lot of well-intentioned people who run for office, but they get sucked up by, the machine, which certainly exists in this country, where as soon as you get in, there are a whole boatload of wealthy interests that are just handed to you on your desk. And here you go, please all of them. What, what are you going to do at that point? You know, are you really going to think of, you know, Joe from down at the coffee shop who you talked to during your campaign? No, I mean, the powers at play there are nefarious at times. They're extremely strong. So, you know, there's a lot of well-intentioned people. I would say that 
you know, and this is going to actually probably surprise you, that in terms of the maliciousness toward the press in private, the Democratic Party right now has a lot more problems than Republicans do. I've had more vitriol from Democratic campaigns who criticized, you know, you know, something that I wrote or thought that I was a Republican shill or something than Republicans have the entire time. I mean, sure, Republicans will blast you on Twitter and sort of try to demean the idea of it. But it does get personal sometimes from some of the Democratic campaigns, which is shocking to me. But to answer your question, well-intentioned individuals who, who get sucked up by the machine. Wait, do you think, do you think um, maybe the Democratic Party, and I'm a pretty liberal guy, as you know, most people know if you read my feed, but like, do you feel like maybe Democrats, in a way, have bought into the quote-unquote liberal media thing in, in that they actually maybe expect you to give them a little more sympathetic coverage? A hundred percent. Absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the main reasons that I want to eventually work in Washington. And again, this doesn't come from a place of arrogance, but I just have a fundamentally different belief of the way journalism should operate. And I think for so many years, you've seen journalists in Washington cozy up to Democratic politicians and hang out at the same clubs as them, go out to the same places to eat. Um, and they're the ones who will funnel you scoops. They'll, they'll give you, you know, stories that you can publish. And you benefit reputationally from that, you know, tenfold by, you know, in, in social media likes and then eventually, you know, clicks and then you get a raise here and there. And, you know, you're just known around Washington. So, yes, the Democratic Party has gotten extremely comfortable with favorable writing from journalists because, you know, I think this was I think it was Stephen Colbert at the White House Correspondents Dinner a couple of years ago, you know, way back actually during the Bush administration that said, well, reality has a liberal bias. And that is kind of true a lot. Like reality, the facts do tend to sometimes show that Republicans are, um, you know, more capable of telling lies and using this for their own position. So I think that definitely incentivizes Democrats to believe that the journalists who cover these campaigns are sort of just going to give them favorable uh, writing all the time when, you know, when you step out of that, you hear from him. You do. Do you, um, how do you think the last four years of Trump and his relationship with the media and, and really the, I guess you would say the, the right wing's relationship with the media and sort of the demonization of the media. Do you feel like that has a long-term effect on things or do you think a new administration, Biden, blah, 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 blah all smooth and good. Or do you, do you feel like this has left a lasting bruise that we will not get rid of? I, I worry that it's the latter. I, I do think that, the way that the press has been so publicly maligned from day one of this administration. And it's, again, it's trickled down to Republican city council candidates who have told my colleagues and told reporters in the city that they're liberal hacks and refuse to talk to them or even let them into their rallies or their campaign parties. Um, I think that that could have an extremely large impact because while it'll change at the top, this country is still going to have a lot of people who believe in the exact thing that Trump uh, expressed the last four years. And Americans have shown that they like that. A lot of Americans have shown that they were disappointed enough in the way the media had handled things over, you know, eight years of Obama and before that, all the way back to the Iraq war, um, that they wanted somebody who was going to push back against that powerful narrative. Um, that, that could be a problem for this entire industry and political reporters and, you know, ultimately the truth. Because again, if we're not there and these people are completely unchecked, um, that, that has real consequences. And I don't think the majority of Americans actually believe or understand that. Do you think they give a shit? Like maybe they just don't give a shit. 
they're not going to give a shit until it's too late. That's the thing. They're not going to care until there's nobody there to ask the city council why they raised taxes or why they didn't, um, you know, pave the street that a bicyclist ended up, you know, dying on or something. It's, they're not going to give a shit until it affects them personally. And right now politics seems so distant from the, you know, common people that the media's impact to them is more so just entertainment than it is, you know, an actual utility for them. Um, I hope they give a shit. I hope they start to give a shit. I just, I'm not confident about it. Yeah. Um, let me ask a final question. I usually ask people covering sports this, but I'm going to ask you this in a special treat, special political edition here. Um, what is the worst chew out you've had in your career? Oh boy. Okay. Are you talking about editors or are you talking about like sources of mine? I mean, I would happily take both, but I usually think of sources like a ball player pissed off at you or something like that. Um, oh man, I, I kind of feel like I am participating in that right this second. Um, there's a congressional campaign around here, the race between Connor Lamb and Sean Parnell that just ended mm-hmm. that Jeff, I got it from both sides, like really hard. Uh, the chewing out was consistent to the point where, you know, yesterday, uh, the Republican candidate, Sean Parnell had just openly blasted me on Twitter in front of his, you know, 600,000 followers. And he's done this in the past and Don Jr. has picked up on it. And, you know, uh, uh, conservative media, media circles have amplified this. So I'm not going to tell you the, the words that have been exchanged in private. They actually haven't been as bad as they have been in public. They're normally nice people in private. Uh, I know that's a little bit of a boring answer, but hey, that's, that's, that's what I've experienced. Maybe I've just been very factual and uh, no one, maybe I'm actually bad at my job if no one's been that pissed at me, right? Does it hurt? Does it hurt when you get it on social media? Are you, are you thick skinned at this point or does it hurt? It definitely hurts. It definitely hurts because uh, you try so hard to be accurate. You, um, you know, you scrutinize every word of your own work and to go on there and be called, you know, a fraud or alleged to be a fraud is um, it hurt. It really does hurt. And I want to get to a point where I can just tweet back and say, you know, you know, F you or here's exactly why you're false in every single way. But I, I still need to get to a place where I can be more confrontational and adversarial toward politicians. The sad part is, is I'm 26 years old. At the end of the day, these people are powerful people. And it is a little bit scary at times to, to go up against those forces because they don't give a shit. They don't care at all about you. Um, but I'd like to build that thick skin. And, and you know, I, you have. I know you have for sure. Yeah, but I don't have to deal with what you're dealing with. And the other, I mean, you just said something that's really interesting that I find fascinating and depressing. Like, you're just a guy. You're a 26-year-old guy who graduated from college four, four years ago, five years ago, four years ago, 2016. Um, you write for a newspaper. You probably make shit money. Like, you're busting your ass. And, like, these people do not give a shit about your reputation. They don't care about throwing you under the bus. They don't care about making you look bad. They don't care about lying. about. Like, they do not care. You are just a freaking chip for them. They don't care. And that must it would make me want to go up to whoever Sean Parnell at some point and be like, you do know I'm a person, right? Like I, I would just, I would really want to be like, you know, I'm a guy, right? You know, you know, I'm not, but you know, I'm trying my best, right, Sean. And I got to think that temptation has to be there as you do this longer and longer. 
It's, it's there all the time. And I, by nature, and maybe this does not make me a great journalist, but I, I am not a confrontational person. And I worry a lot about the effects of all this because, you know, we've seen it in places and I'm not blaming Sean Parnell at all. I'm talking about just the, 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 the way we talk and to meet to the media and treat people where this has gotten dangerous for people. And I do want to say, I don't have a single bit of me that reported these races in a way that I didn't think was right or factual. And the thing is, Jeff, is we're not in the place anymore where people will say, you know what, Julian, you're right. You made an honest attempt. I, I can see your argument. No, it's fuck you. Uh, I'm going to use this forever and it's going to benefit me. It's just going to benefit me. Would they say it in private to you? Would they be like, Hey, I know man, but you know, I got to do blah, 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 blah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they do. That's the thing. Sometimes they do. I've had, I've had candidates tell me, you know, I, I'm going to be harsh on you in public. I'm going to do it because it benefits us. You know that, you know this, they say like, you know, you have to assume this, right? And I, I think, no, I don't have to assume this at all. Again, I'm 26 years old. I got a family down the street. I grew up here. I just want to do my job and get people factual information. And if you're going to stand in the way, I think that's extremely unfortunate. The, uh, the Pirates beat writer job opens in a year. Are you tempted? They're like, Julian, you want to jump to this? Are you tempted? I wanted to be a sports writer since I was a kid. I started out in college wanting to be a sports writer, looking up to people like you. I, I think I would consider it very heavily. But again, no matter all the stuff that's going on, I think there's such a place for political journalism done the right way. So, you know, it would be that argument of, you know, do I have a moral duty to stand up and try to do this? Or do I want to do something that I think would be, you know, actually fulfilling for me as a person and just, you know, make me happy? Um, so, I, you know, I, I consider it. <laughs> um, let me ask you a last, last, last question. I'm going to ask you to put your uh, prognosticator hat on. Um, you know, the year turns 2021. I guess Joe Biden presumably is going to be, you know, become the president. Does the peaceful transition of power as we know it ultimately take place? As we know it, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that it will take place in the way we're accustomed to. Um, even during the, the, the Obama to Trump flip, you saw Obama and him you know, have very cordial meetings. You had the administration try to prepare Trump for what was to come. I don't think we're going to see any of that. But whether that's peaceful, I still think it could remain peaceful in that type of way. I don't think at this point he's shown that he's going to put up a fight to be on these legal cases. I don't know whether or not he's preparing to finally concede. Um, I hope it's peaceful. I think it will be, but I don't think Joe Biden's going to get all the material and all the documents from, you know, all the different cabinet heads. I think he's going to have to go in there on day one pretty, you know, you know, just to start fresh, which is unfortunate, but that's, that's where the evidence points to at this point. Man. Well, Julian, I just want to say, this is a podcast, but I, we're talking face to face and I feel like you are a guy who needs a vacation. You need a tropical vacation. Sadly, we're in COVID, but if I could, if I could fly you to like, you know, Tahiti and give you three weeks a month, couple of cocktails, you know, a beach, towel, sunny days. I feel like you of all people, you've done a great job. Like you've done a great job. You've done a killer job covering this election, but I feel like you need a vacation. Thank you. Whenever your parents look at you and say, wow, what are the bags under your eyes? Like, you know, they react like that. It's like, oh God, what did I do to myself? I really need to take a break. And actually, you know, Jeff, thank you for, for sort of bookending my experience here with this. This is the last thing I'm going to do probably for a day or two and just sort of slow down a bit. So, um, you know, thanks for, for having me and being able to make this uh, special election a little more special. You have my approval to take a long nap. 
thank you. Please tell my editors that I'll give you their numbers after this. I want to thank today's guest, Julian Routh, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Julian on Twitter at Julian Routh and read his work in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>